Hello there, everyone. Rick Cole here, and you are listening to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. We come to you each week from the beautiful Niagara region of Ontario, Canada, bringing you all the big news stories in the hockey and sporting worlds from 50 years ago this week. This time around, we're in the week of March 16 to 22nd, 1970. Now, our podcast is made possible by the support of our two sponsors. Newspapers.com is the world's largest online newspaper archive, and their support has been crucial to our research as they enable us to access all the newspapers in hockey land of the 1970s. We're also sponsored by the Breakwall Brewing Company located in beautiful downtown Port Coburn, Ontario. The folks at the Breakwall produce outstanding craft beers, many of which are from recipes crafted by the town's first breweries in the late 1800s. Just the other day, I had a pint of their maple lager, and that particular brew is from one of those original recipes, and it's delicious. Uh, the Breakwall also served the best pub food around with delicious gourmet burger and pizza specials each week, crafted by the amazing team in their kitchen. If you're in the Niagara region, get hold of me, and we'll have a burger or some pizza at the break wall. In last week's show, some of the stories we discussed were uh, we talked about a couple of late trades that weren't reported as the uh, deadline for making deals passed, showing just how different trade line activities were with the media in 1970. Now, we talked about all the craziness surrounding the Vancouver Canucks and Joe Crozier in that ongoing situation that sort of has resolved itself. And we delved into what could possibly be wrong with two of the NHL, well, they thought they were the top two teams in the NHL, along with Boston, the Montreal Canadiens, and New York Rangers, both in danger of missing the playoffs. Now, this time around, we have a few other news items to look at. Uh, We'll discuss uh, some of the technical issues faced by hockey broadcasters in the 1970s, especially in the United States where hockey television was still in its uh, relative infancy. We'll learn about a bit more about the player who is being given by the media most of the credit for the resurgence of the Chicago Blackhawks this season. Can you guess who that is? And we'll find out about the fate of the Canadian national hockey team in the wake of Canada's withdrawal from international ice hockey competition. Of course, we have tons more news as the NHL teams are now fully engaged in the stretch run for the playoffs, which in the Eastern Division, it's quite a horse race with five teams involved competing for four spots. A lot to talk about, so let's get to it. We'll start the week with news and notes. We'll kind of be moving around a lot this week because there's a lot going on and it kind of uh, involves different teams all over the place. Uh, First up, we saw the debut this week of an engaging rookie for the hapless Toronto Maple Leafs. The Leafs are going nowhere this year, so they've decided to give a few people some opportunities. And one of these young fellas is a left winger out of British Columbia by the name of Brian Spencer. 
Now, Brian immediately gained favor with Maple Leaf Gardens crowd with an aggressive, almost helter-skelter kind of play. Very physical guy. Uh, showed he has some offensive skills and even earned an assist, I think, in his first game. Uh, Brian's nickname is Spinner, and he's one of those guys. He's like a whirling dervish out there when he's got his head right into the game. Now, Brian was held out of the lineup in weekend games when he sustained a shoulder injury. Coach Johnny McClellan of the Maple Leafs was told by the team's training staff that playing the youngster could cause further damage to the injured shoulder and inhibit his play in the future. So Brian sat out for a bit after some very good debut games for the Maple Leafs. Boston Bruins uh, rambunctious center Derek Sanderson finds himself in hot water again. This time Derek's been fined an undetermined amount by the National Hockey League for some bad behavior. This time the league dinged him for making an indecent gesture towards fans in Chicago in a Wednesday evening 0-0 tie last week at Chicago Stadium. Sanderson said he sincerely regretted his actions but he justified what he did by saying he was very angry with both the Chicago team and their fans and he reacted without thinking. He added that he knew he was wrong and he hoped that all the fans would accept his apology, at least until the next time. Now, of course, this was an interview with reporters from outside Boston. Derek had a different tune when interviewed by the Boston Globe. He said Sunday evening that it was all a misunderstanding based on a difference in social customs, really. Derek said, where I come from in Niagara Falls, Ontario, the upraised hand and clasped bicep is a greeting, he said. It means, hi, how are you? How you doing? We do it all the time at home. Now, I can tell you, as a resident of the Niagara area in the 1960s and 70s, that gesture was not used as a greeting of friendship. Just saying. Anyway, Derek did a, an interview on Hockey Night in Canada not long afterwards with Ward Cornell. And uh, we have a little bit of that interview here where he talks about his notoriety and uh, also about uh, the rumor before this season that he had planned on wearing white skates. Here's Derek Sanderson and Ward Cornell. Derek, in the course of this past year, you've received uh, lots of publicity in national magazines, uh, uh, television shows, and you're quite the swashbuckler according to stories. Are you really that much of a swashbuckler? I don't know. It's uh, the freedom of the press. They can print what they want. I don't know. I just uh, say something and they just uh, repeat it. I don't know. I just like to enjoy life. That's all. <laughs> Derek, what is your attitude towards uh, the publicity that you get? Well, a lot of it's uh, good, a lot of it's bad, and uh, whether it's good or bad doesn't bother as long as they keep saying something about you. And then if they say something that isn't correct, you have a chance for a yeah, follow-up then, story. Yeah, then you get a follow-up story, and then you get another one printed about the guy being put down the first time, and everybody just keeps right. Mm -hmm. Does this incidentally help, of course, when it comes to contract negotiation time or not? No, not at all, but uh, in the off-season it'll help in other things like mm -hmm. endorsements and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Derek, what about the story that uh, came up last summer that, gee, Derek Sanderson's going to wear white skates this year? I was, uh, everybody was uh, fooling around. They knew I was going to go in with... Uh, Nameth in Bachelors 3, and uh, consequently, everybody says, uh, if you're going in business with him, you're going to wear white skates. And it was a joke, and I just mentioned it again to some reporter that I was going to try him, and he blew the story out of proportion and uh, kept on going, and uh, I just sat back and read some 
Can you really see yourself in white skates? No, no, not at all. It's, uh, I don't want to try to Americanize the game that much. Uh, I wouldn't wear white skates, I don't think. Incidentally, one of the other teams, of course, has gone to color skates. Uh, no, St. Louis has got uh, blue skates. The whole team's got blue skates. But uh, I think they look a little bit ridiculous. Nobody can intimidate you with blue skates, and I know that. Still with the Boston Bruins, they lost right winger Johnny McKenzie for a week with bruised ribs sustained in a Sunday evening 5-5 tie with the Detroit Red Wings. The Bruins all have lots of depth and they've called up promising young right winger Tommy Webster from the Oklahoma City Blazers of the Central Professional Hockey League to fill in for Pye. You may remember, Tom, he was a star with the Niagara Falls Flyers of the OHA Junior A Series about the same time that Bernie Perrant was a goaltender for that fine Junior A team. Another Bruins tidbit that we have here, uh, General Manager Milt Schmidt hasn't really liked what he's seeing from his free-spirited group of players this uh, week. So apparently the players have been uh, quickly gathering a reputation around the NHL for a, well, shall we say, a hard-living lifestyle. They party as hard as they play. They've been enjoying a bit too much of the nightlife to satisfy Milt, both on the road and at home in Boston. So Milt, ever mindful of the effects of an excess of the good life can have on a team, has issued a stern warning to his players. In fact, it was so stern, reporters outside the Bruins dressing room after a practice with the doors closed could hear exactly what Milt was saying, most of it was unreportable in the newspapers of 1970. Uh, Milt told his players, in not so many words, that any player who breaks team curfew at home or on the road, a curfew which has been in effect for years but not really strongly policed, will be immediately fined a cool $500, which is about... 10 times the customary amount levied for such transactions by the team. Now, Milt hopes this threat will keep his players in line for the rest of the season, and uh, hopefully they will be at full strength and at top form when the playoffs roll around. Now, writers all over the National Hockey League cities were trumpeting the fact that the New York Rangers, clearly in a free fall, were likely to miss the National Hockey League playoffs. Now, Stan Fischler, as we talk about a lot, has uh, these special to the Toronto Star stories every week, and he talked about a huge choke-up signs in big block letters at Madison Square Garden. And although he didn't outright call the team chokers, uh, the message from him was clear on this. He also blamed the attitude and poor play of goalie Terry Sawchuk, serving this year as Eddie Jackman's backup, as greatly contributing to the team's downfall, as well as, among other things, players on the team worrying that they might be the players going to Toronto after the season in that deal for Tim Horton. Fischler even quoted Jean Rattel as saying he was worried he might be a player going to Toronto for Horton. Now that, my friends, is a ludicrous suggestion at best. Jean Rattel had no more chance of being traded to the Maple Leafs than he did leading the NHL in penalties. Jean is not that kind of guy. The Rangers would not let him go 
for a 40-year-old defenseman. And don't forget, they've already settled be two or three players, maybe four, going to Toronto for Horton. Rattel alone would not go, let alone along with anyone else. Now, Joe O'Day of the New York Daily News also wrote about the Rangers possibly missing the playoffs, but he chose to simply prevent uh, facts and statistics. And he did quote Emil Francis, who gave a clear and level-headed assessment of the situation, which was bordering on dire at this point. I don't disagree with Stan or anyone else. Things were bad in New York. And Emil said this, always looking on the bright side, he said, there is one bright light. We're back to playing well enough to win, but we're being beaten by our own mistakes. Emil says it's just a matter of turning the corner, getting a win, and building on it from there. He said he couldn't feel sorry for himself because no one else in the league is going to feel sorry for you. This is the big boys league for sure. Francis did say that they'd gone all year with the big line, which was Dave Ballone, Walt Kachuk, and Billy Fairbairn, leading the team in scoring. But they're in a slump right now, and Emil feels the hockey players are just too good to uh, take this on very, uh, very long. Now, one thing we did find out about that uh, Billy Fairbairn on that uh, Rangers line, he's been wearing a knee brace and it greatly restricts his mobility, especially laterally. If Fairbairn can ever get used to this and get show the form that he had early in the season when he was being touted as rookie of the year in the NHL, that's going to be a very good thing for the Rangers. Now, the Rangers had a milestone this week. Captain Bob Nevin netted his 200th NHL goal when the Rangers finally broke their slump with a 2-0 win over the Pittsburgh Penguins, exactly what Francis was talking about that the team needed. The Minnesota North Stars have called up young center Walter McKechnie from their Iowa Central Hockey League farm team. He's coming up to replace veteran Tommy Williams, who uh, he's down with a pretty bad throat infection, and another center as well, Ray Cullen. He's got the flu and he's got a bad case of it. And the North Stars are worried that these two guys just might miss more time. And now, uh, McKechnie has been up and down with the team in each of the team's first three seasons. It's just a matter of time before this big guy wins a regular job in the NHL. Maybe he'll stick this time. Uh, He's certainly been playing well in the CHL as well. The Pittsburgh Penguins are another NHL team in the Western Division, hard hit by injuries. The latest guys to go down for the Penguins are centers Brian Hextall and Wally Boyer. So the Penguins made a move to get a body in to fill in for these two centers, and he is Rick Kessel, who was recalled from the Baltimore Clippers of the American Hockey League. Now Hextall has a busted left hand, and Boyer is nursing a groin injury. Both of these guys are expected to return this season the Penguins currently sitting in second place in the Western Division can ill afford to lose anybody else they don't want to miss the playoffs for a third straight season but the way Red Kelly has this team playing we think they'll be there at the end Dan Stone King, uh, he's a hockey reporter with the Minneapolis Star, has been writing about how well the North Stars have been drawing at home, but he also uh, 
did some research and found out that their television audiences have increased just as much as ticket sales at their arena. Now, Dan, uh, quite realistically, talks about the challenges faced by technical crews broadcasting the relatively new-to-TV sport of hockey. And we have a little bit about what uh, Dan had to say. He said uh, that hockey telecasts are mainly considered to be uh, video nightmares, actually, in the television industry. It's because of the nature of the game. Uh, television has a lot of technical problems, and they haven't yet solved them. If you were a viewer of hockey in the early 70s, uh, you had that problem. As a resident where I lived out near Lake Erie, uh, between Port Coburn and Dunville, about 20 miles from Buffalo, we couldn't get the Toronto stations very well. And very often, with that snowy picture we had on a Saturday night in the winter, we weren't even sure they were using a puck in the NHL games. Americans not used to following the game have the same problem. The puck is too small and it's always in motion. It's going back and forth. The close-up shots just can't capture the action, so you can't really see the puck from them high top of the arena uh, shots that we were getting in the 1970s. Originally, there was maybe one, maybe two cameras for the NHL games, and they started using multiple cameras, and that sort of offered a partial solution but wasn't satisfactory according to most observers. Keeping tabs on that three-inch wide black rubber puck was just too hard. They required all NHL arenas to install a light-colored strip along the base of the rink boards. You've probably seen it in most rinks. It was bright yellow to try and let the people on television see the puck even you know, a lot better. Uh, that's because so much of the play takes place along the boards. Now, there were other suggestions. Don Ruck, the NHL vice president, he said that it was suggested that the ice be black and they make the puck white. That would do is just make a small white puck instead of a small black puck. Really didn't make any sense at all. Now, the glare from the ice is another problem that people were having trouble with when watching and televising the games in 1970. WGN of Chicago, Channel 9, they pioneered the idea of painting a dull white surface beneath the ice. Before that, the ice surfaces were just the color of the concrete over which the water was frozen. Now they do have a white base and that does make it a little better. If you look at any early films of the NHL, it looks like the guys are skating on the pond out, out behind the barn back in the 1930s. Dan Kelly, the CBS play-by-play -play man, says that it, they have to do the game so that uh, a fan in Atlanta can understand it, as well as a fan in Chicago. Chicago fans are sophisticated. They know the job. But if you're doing a network game, and this game is being broadcast down in the Bible Belt in the South, a lot of those folks have never seen a hockey game and they probably have very little clue of what's going on. Dan says it means explaining what things like icing or forechecking or offside mean and he has to do it in a way that's not condescending. Uh, more like a, a baseball commentator telling his audience that uh, three strikes are out. If, if it's going to sound like that to the sophisticated fans, you're going to lose them but yet you have to make it understandable for the many new fans that the NHL hopes to bring on. Now, unfamiliarity with the game is a problem for the cameraman as well. 
Uh, one thing that the American broadcasters have been doing has been bringing in some of the CBC uh, broadcasting people to give the CBS crew some uh, pointers on how to follow the puck with the cameras. If you remember those early CBS broadcasts, sometimes it was pretty difficult to actually tell what was going on because of the camera views had no idea where the puck was and Dan Kelly really kept us informed now Dan Stone King finished off his article by saying that hockey telecasts do have a lot of good things going for him uh, the instant replay and slow motion are probably more valuable to actual actual hockey people than uh, the any other sport it really does break down what happened on a play very well and with the speed and skill that the game is played at in 1970s you have to wait to capture exactly what happened when they slow down the action it allows people to actually see more of a back of exactly why a goal was scored or a great save was made those are some of the uh, technical problems that faced the early telecasters in the National Hockey League. And when we look at the games today, we really don't know how good we have it. Well, except maybe for some of the people still calling the games these days and a lot of the commentators that really act like they know everything about the game. But when you see what they're talking about, sometimes you wonder if they even played it. Well, the player given most credit for the rise from also ran to contender this season by the Chicago Blackhawks is rookie goalie Tony Esposito. Now, Tony was acquired by the Hawks from the Canadians last June when the team opted to protect Rogie Vashon and Gump Worsley in the interleague draft and the Hawks snapped them up. Tony, of course, as you know, is the younger brother of the Bruins, Phil Esposito. Now, coach of Chicago is Billy Ray, and he was asked not long ago to account for the outstanding success the Blackhawks are enjoying this season. Billy says, if I had to single out one factor, I guess that factor would be Tony Esposito. Tony, statistically, is leading the league goaltenders in just about every category, especially in the goals against average, which is what determines who wins the Vezina Trophy. If Tony continues to lead the Vezina Trophy race, he will be the first rookie to do that since Frankie Brimsek did it in 1939 with the Boston Bruins. Tony has limited the opposition to only 120 goals in the 54 games he started for the Hawks this year. He's got 32 wins and seven ties. And amazingly, at the time that this was taking place, this interview, he had 12 shutouts. The National Hockey League record for shutouts in a season is 13, and that was recorded by Toronto's Harry Lumley back in 1953-54. Of course, he's nowhere close to George Hainsworth's 22 shutouts, but that was back in the Neanderthal time of hockey, back in 1928-29. Hainsworth, by the way, recorded his 22 shutouts in only 44 games. Now, Ray went on to say just what uh, Tony has meant to the Blackhawks. He said that time and again, uh, Esposito was the guy that would give you the big save just when you needed it, the save that would give the team a lift. 
uh, so many times you get that kind of save and you go right down to the other team's end and score a goal. The Hawks' defensive average last year was 3.24 goals against per game and Tony has trimmed just about a full goal a game off that. Now with Tony here, none of the three goaltenders that were with the Blackhawks last year are even around. Uh, Dave Dryden has actually retired, although there's word he may make a comeback next year. Dennis DeJordi lost the job to Tony and then was traded to the LA Kings for newcomer Jerry Desjardins. Jack Norris was also with the Blackhawks last year, and he was drafted by the Canadians, uh, actually in return for the Hawks claiming Exposito from the Habs. People who are, I guess you could say, classic hockey men, they don't like the way Tony Esposito plays goal. He's got an unorthodox, sprawling style, legs spread out to the side, standing with his legs wide open, uh, almost in what you could consider the uh, profile of a butterfly. He's accused of dropping to the ice way too often, going down too soon, and uh, everybody in the uh, traditional hockey uh, world believes that a horizontal goalie is in no position to make a second save. The proof, however, is in the pudding. You know, as far as Billy Ray is concerned, Tony Esposito gets a job done, and he doesn't care how he do it, how he does it. You don't get points for neatness in the statistics for hockey. Billy says that uh, the thing that makes Tony so good is his alertness. He's very much in the game at all times. If you watch Tony play, it seems like his eyes are riveted on the puck. And for that reason, he's a split second ahead of everything that happens instead of being a split second behind as so many goalies have been in the past. Now, Tony, if you remember, was Montreal Canadiens property while he was in Michigan, Michigan Tech University, and he graduated in 1967. He was sent to the Vancouver Canucks in the Western League, and uh, he'd been around the minors until last season when he got into 13 games with the Canadiens, mostly as an injury replacement. Playing less than 25 games means Tony still qualifies to win the Calder Trophy as the NHL's top rookie, and realistically, when you look at the other rookies in the league, and there are many fine first-year players. I don't mean to take away from any of those. What Tony has done is truly worthy of the Rookie of the Year award. Another thing that has really helped Tony is what uh, Billy Ray and General Manager Tommy Ivan have done with the Blackhawks this year. Uh, the first and most important thing was they instituted a tighter overall defensive uh, system. Uh, there's more emphasis on checking than ever before, and even Bobby Hull is bought into the system. The Hawks have rediscovered that hockey's a team sport, and that's something which has contributed heavily to the guy who gets our vote for NHL Rookie of the Year this year, Tony Esposito. Last week, we reported that a new candidate had emerged in the search for the next coach of the Detroit Red Wings. That man is Ned Harkness, who is currently the coach of the highly successful Cornell University hockey team in New York State. Well, this week, Harkness and the Red Wings management have apparently gotten together and talked contract. 
Now, rumors immediately arose saying that Harkness had already signed a three-year contract to coach Detroit, but Ned himself discounted those stories. He said he hadn't signed anything yet. And general manager Sid Abel said that he had not been consulted about the hiring of a coach and he emphasized that no coach of the Detroit Red Wings could or would be hired without his being consulted on the selection first and the subject had not even been discussed with ownership and Abel. Now I wonder if Sid who's an old school hockey man if ever there was one would he be in favor of a college guy running the Red Wings bench? Well, actually, uh, rumblings we've heard in, in from different sources, uh, Sid might actually not have a say in this thing. I don't know if Sid is completely aware of what's going on in the executive suites at the Detroit Olympia. Rumblings out of Detroit are indicating that the man who was rapidly rising in the Red Wings management hierarchy is Jim Bishop. He's a native of Oshawa, Ontario, and he was hired by Bruce Norris, the Red Wings owner, to run the Olympia, run the arena. Now, Bishop's main area of expertise and what his uh, experience has been is in the sport of lacrosse, but he somehow gained the ear of Bruce Norris, and that can't be good for other hockey people in the organization. Now, Bishop is great friends with Ned Harkness, and it is said that this is where the rumors of uh, Harkness going to Detroit started. They are close friends from their lacrosse days, so we'll have to stay tuned on this. Uh, Lacrosse guy, no professional hockey experience, running an NHL franchise. What could go wrong? Little uh, news tidbit out of St. Louis. Uh, Stuart Symington is a Democratic senator for the state of Missouri, and he has been elected to the board of directors of the St. Louis Blues. Uh, now, how you would think, why would a uh, an American senator from an area not traditionally considered a hockey hotbed uh, go on to the board of directors for a hockey team? Well, Blues owner Sid Solomon Jr. is the Democratic National Committee man for the state of Missouri, and you know he and Symington are well acquainted. Also with the Blues, Coach Scotty Bowman, who most people believe is a pretty perceptive guy when it comes to the game of hockey. Scotty thinks that the NHL game has become too fast for one referee to handle. Scotty says you solve that problem by giving linesmen more authority to call penalties that the referees can't see. Only uh, one set of eyes on the game isn't fast enough to catch all that goes on. And speaking of Bowman, he left the Blues to embark on a scouting trip in Canada as uh, this podcast was being recorded, making his NHL coaching debut behind the bench for the Blues will be the injured defenseman Al Arbor. Arbor finally coaching. I wonder if Al might like coaching. He's been considering retirement this year. It's a long grind for him. Uh, he's getting more injuries. Uh, Bowman said he wants to make it abundantly clear to Al that he has a future in St. Louis. Al might not have liked his uh, initial stab at coaching, 
The Blues lost to the Maple Leafs by a 2-0 score. Uh, Al was never known for his offense as a player, and so getting shutout might have been something one would expect. The shutout was, by the way, the first in the NHL for the Toronto Maple Leaf netminder Marv Edwards. We're glad to see that. Uh, One other Blues note, uh, Noel Picard, the defenseman, he's been out with back problems for quite a while. He's saying now that there's a chance he might return at some point to help his club if they go far in the Stanley Cup playoffs. Little bit of news out of Philadelphia this week. Uh, recently, the Flyers held a promotion in which the winner of a draw would win a trip to the sunny south. Over 40,000 fans submitted entry ballots. They were paper ballots. They had to uh, submit to be going into a giant drum. And a draw was held at the Philadelphia Spectrum at a Flyers game. Now, the winner of the draw was Mrs. Shirley Gordon of Philadelphia. No problem there, except for the fact that Shirley Gordon just happens to be the mother-in-law of the Flyers' owner, Ed Snyder. Now, this was not fixed. Ed was shocked. He was upset. Uh, He went to the draw location and immediately ordered that another ballot be drawn. And the winner this time was Mrs. Lou Goldberg of Cherry Hill, New Jersey. She got the trip south, and she was accompanied by Mrs. Gordon. Ed sent Mrs. Gordon on the trip because, well, his mother-in-law said she won the draw fair and square and deserved the trip, and she collected. The Flyers also lost forward Earl Heiskala for the rest of the season. They have eight games left. He was suspended by the NHL for a deliberate attempt to injure Terry Gray of the St. Louis Blues. Now, NHL President Clarence Campbell ruled that uh, Heskala had a brief altercation with Tim Ecclestone of the Blues. Now, Ecclestone was carrying the puck, and uh, Heskala... He straight-armed uh, Ecclestone, kind of clotheslined him, right in the face, knocked him down. So referee Bill Friday was right on the on the play, and he signaled a minor penalty to Huskala for roughing, and he allowed the play to continue. Now, both players continued a verbal exchange, and then Terry Gray moved in, and without any effort to play the puck, he elbowed Huskala heavily in the face. Now, Earl's a big guy, but uh, you take... Uh, an elbow in the face it can take its toll he stumbled but he regained his balance took a step back raised his stick over his head and he chopped terry gray just above his forehead on the right side witnesses said it was not a particularly hard blow but it was hard enough to open a six stitch cut and uh gray had to leave the game well Heiskala left the game as well with a game misconduct for attempt to injure. And Campbell says he's not coming back anytime this year. Well, we said we'd talk about the Canadian National Hockey Team. And I guess we'll have to tell you they've reached the end of the line. Uh, with no meaningful competition available thanks to Canada's withdrawal from international ice hockey competition. Hockey Canada suspended the team's operations, closed its Winnipeg office, and the players have scattered across the country. 
General Manager Buck Houle said that a decision to close up shop was reached last week. Three of the players are, are working out with the Montreal Canadiens. That's Bob Murdoch, Mike Poirier, and Bob LePage. Uh, Billy McMillan has been given a tryout with the Maple Leafs Tulsa farm team. The rest of the players who are college students, well, they're in the middle of exams right now and probably won't play hockey again till next fall. Now, the original plan had called for the team to play some exhibition games around the country and to carry on with operations, hoping that Canada would get back into the international game, but that will not be the case. Basically, the International Ice Hockey Federation and the International Olympic Committee have teamed up to prevent any professional participation in international hockey competition. It's amazing because they could pick capitulate to the communist countries whose players are engaged in hockey 11 months out of the year but somehow because they're not playing for the Bruins or the Blackhawks they're classified as amateur it's a it's just disgusting and I'm glad that they're not uh, involved with it anymore by the way this year's world championships are being held in Stockholm Sweden if you remember it was scheduled to be in Canada and of course when we withdrew it went to Sweden attendance at the games is down by about 4,000 fans per game without Canada being there now if you want to know any of the results of the tournament this year look them up I'm not going to dignify that sham of a competition with any further mention other than give you a bit of a spoiler the Russians haven't lost a game yet. Who'd have thunk that? Now, a story reported in several American newspapers is saying that an open competition World Cup of Hockey is being held next year in Colorado Springs, in which the top teams from this year's World Championship will play along with the U.S. and Canada, and uh, the North American teams will apparently be allowed to use professionals. The story said that... Uh, this tournament has been given the approval by IIHF President Bunny Ahern. Didn't take long for Ahern to immediately come forward and say he didn't give any approval to that idea. And the USSR and Czech said they understood that the proposed tournament was to be held for their so-called amateur club teams and national squads wouldn't be part of it. Ain't gonna happen. Toronto Maple Leafs held a press conference this week uh, when they said they're going to have a presser. Rumors abounded that the team had been sold or Jim Gregory and Johnny McClellan had been fired. But to me, it was a much more significant event. The reason for the confab with the press was to announce that Johnny Bauer, the great Maple Leaf netminder, was formally announcing that he was retiring as a player at age 45. Johnny was to immediately begin his duties as a scout and goalkeeping coach for the team. Uh, John had actually been doing this uh, on an unofficial basis since injuring his knee early in the season. And uh, one of the greatest goaltenders ever to grace the goal crease at Maple Leaf Gardens, hanging up his skates forever. And now he's on uh, the road looking for goaltending prospects for the Maple Leafs. Uh, they've got one from University of Minnesota, a Toronto native by the name of Murray McLaughlin, who is the uh, Western Collegiate Hockey Association All-Star goalie for this year. The Leafs have actually invited Murray to Toronto for a weekend to hang around with the team and get a flavor of what the pro game actually looks like. And speaking of the Maple Leafs, the New York Daily News reports there's a good chance that Red Kelly 
will return to the Toronto Maple Leafs next season. Red, you know, is the coach of the Pittsburgh Penguins, but he's on a one-year handshake contract. The uh, different papers or the, the Daily News is reporting that Red Kelly may be the general manager coach of the Maple Leafs in the 70-71 season. Wouldn't that be something? Uh, news out of Buffalo, a little fly in the ointment that is the expansion of the Memorial Auditorium in Buffalo. If you remember when the city was granted an NHL franchise uh, to begin play in 1970-71, one of the NHL's conditions was that the team play its game in uh, an expanded odd. The agreement uh, said that the building's seating capacity had to be increased from about 9,800 to somewhere above 15,100 and they were going to do that by raising the roof of the arena 22 feet at a cost estimated to be about 62 million dollars. Well the Buffalo Common Council approved that amount in a bond issue to cover those expenses. Well they put the project out for tenders and guess what the uh, lowest bid to complete the job is 7.8 million that's a shortfall of 1.6 million dollars and that isn't sitting well with the city fathers it's entirely possible that the project could be delayed and any changes to that are going to have to be worked out with the nhl but don't worry about this folks especially if you're in buffalo if you're a buffalo hockey fan worried the team might somehow be presented taking the ice just remember this toronto president staff Smythe ran into punch imlac at a uh, an nhl function a few weeks ago and he told punch that the only reason buffalo got an nhl team was that no one else had applied to the league for a franchise and the league had to have two teams for expansion they don't have anywhere else to go at this point so one way or another the buffalo sabers will be playing in memorial auditorium next season roof raised or not the nhl wants to keep that six million dollar franchise fee way more than they want to see a few extra seats in the odd in the next couple of seasons Two NHL records were set this week. The Philadelphia Flyers set the first one when they played the New York Rangers to a 2-2 stalemate in the spectrum. That sets a new NHL record for ties in this season by one team with 24. Now think about this. Will all those avoided losses power the Flyers to a playoff spot? Or will all those missed victories be costly and uh, leave them outside of the postseason the other nhl record set this week bobby orr recorded his 78th assist of the nhl season and that breaks the record of 77 set last year by teammate phil esposito this is not assist by a defenseman in a season this is assist by any player in the season and to have a defenseman set that record is truly incredible and one more note the blues have clinched the clarence campbell bowl for first place in the western division this week when uh, the second place pittsburgh penguins were mathematically eliminated uh, in the eastern division as we mentioned it's a horse race with any of the five teams still in contention capable of finish anywhere from first to fifth and we'll have all that coverage as we go on over the next couple of weeks
so that is our show for you this week, folks. A lot of stuff going on again. But what did we learn from what we had this week? Well, we learned about some of the challenges that TV producers are facing when broadcasting hockey in the 1970s, especially when they're not used to such a tough sport to cover. We looked at the player given most credit for the resurgence of the Chicago Blackhawks last season, rookie goalie Tony Esposito, and we learned about the completely expected demise of the Canadian national hockey team. It is a little sad. I enjoyed uh, international hockey and the Canadian national teams until it became apparent that the fix was in all the time. So now I'm glad they've let the players move on to greener pastures and we shouldn't go back until we play on a level playing field. Now some of the stories we're working on for next week will cover the wild race for the playoffs in the Eastern Division. It's a complete free-for-all between five teams as we mentioned and there's enough permutations to boggle the mind. It certainly seems that the NHL's tie-breaking contingency plans are going to be tested one way or another. We'll find out that Tony Esposito is moving closer to that NHL record of shutouts and more rumors that the California Seals are looking at moving. But of course, the NHL won't let them, will they? You won't believe where the news stories have them going this time. Please join us next week for another 50-year trip back to 1970. The uh, 50 Years Ago podcast is put together by Andy Cole. He produces this program and he does a wonderful job. He's an expert in this stuff. He's a whiz. We can't thank him enough. A very popular Juno-nominated Toronto indie uh, rock group, the Rural Alberta Advantage, prides our intro music. And if you ever get a chance to see them, it's a great experience. I can't recommend them high enough. Uh, Other musical pieces and our sound effects, they're put in by our producer Andy Cole as well. Our research comes from files at the Toronto Star, the Toronto Globe and Mail, and of course the many publications found at newspapers.com. Don't forget to give a listen to the Let's Write a Song podcast hosted each week by Andy Cole. Andy and a special guest usually engage in some great conversation and during that time they write a brand new musical piece, a song which they perform at the end of the show. The interesting part is a lot of the guests, they're not musicians at all and what they come up with is very unique and quite entertaining. You should give it a listen. Now you can find us on Twitter at at Hockey50Years and on Facebook under 50 Years Ago in Hockey. We have a WordPress site, Hockey50YearsAgo.com and of course you can get us through your favorite podcast app and on Spotify. Thanks again to everyone who tunes into our show. We enjoy bringing this to you every week and we have some exciting additions in the work in the future. Uh, on that note, we will see you next time. When the ice breaks-